Good morning. Let's begin with prayer. Gloria in excelsis Deo. Father, thank you for these words from the angels that teach us how to praise. Glory to God in the highest. Father, we praise you for the marvelous plan that we get to read about this morning. We pray that you would help us to listen well and stir our hearts to such glorious praise. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> this morning we're in Luke chapter 2. Again, that's Luke 2. If you have a Bible, turn there with me. On December 17th, 2007, 16 years ago today, James Alexander Philip Theo Montbatten Windsor, Earl of Sussex, wasn't done yet, was born. Now you can probably guess from the name that James is an important person. In fact, James is the youngest of the late Queen Elizabeth II and Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh's eight grandchildren. He's the youngest nephew of King Charles III. The significance of James is evident by his name and his family, but not only that, we learn about him through the details around his birth and his early life. On this day, 16 years ago, happy birthday, by the way, James, he was born in one of England's top hospitals. He and his mom received world-class care. Not long after his birth, James was baptized in the private chapel of Windsor Castle. This is a chapel reserved for the monarch, only a handful of people have ever stepped foot inside. For that baptism ceremony, James became the first royal baby to wear a newly made replica of the royal christening gown that dates back to the christening of Queen Victoria and Prince Albert's eldest child. I found a picture online. Imagine a frilly, you know, lots of lace and puffy wedding dress, but sized for a baby. Not long after his baptism, James was recognized and honored by the lieutenant governor of Manitoba. Canada wanted to name a lake after him. The family, the name, the place, the pomp, right, the honor, they all point to the reality that there was something special about this little baby. As you know, one week from today, we will gather on Christmas Eve to celebrate the birth of another baby, one who is of far greater importance and significance. And we're not waiting till next week to get started, because our text this morning is Luke 2, 1 through 20. It's the account of the birth of Jesus. And like the infant Earl of Sussex, James, we're going to see that the details surrounding the birth of Jesus in these 20 verses tell us a lot about who he is. And even more than that, they reveal how we ought today to respond to this child born 2,000 years ago. 
In the Gospel of Luke, there's great anticipation for what comes together in chapter 2. In Luke 1, 26, the angel Gabriel comes to Mary, a young virgin, and tells her that she will conceive in her womb and bear a son. And he goes on to say that this child will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. This is no ordinary child. When Mary visits her relative, Elizabeth, who's also miraculously pregnant, she receives confirmation that God is doing something special. In Luke 1:45, you could look there with me, we see their exchange. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. Can you imagine this very old and miraculously pregnant Elizabeth talking to this very young and also miraculously pregnant Mary like David, danced before the ark of the Lord, this place of God's special presence on earth. So the baby inside Elizabeth's womb dances. He leaps for joy before Mary and the little one growing inside her. These two women get an inside look at what God is doing. And here's the best part. Mary is a nobody. Maybe that's just me speaking as an American, but she's not a princess. She's not a royal. She's not even fully married yet. In exalting the humble Mary, God was, in a way, bringing down rulers from on high to quote Mary herself. And in Luke 2, 1, we find one of these rulers. Look at Luke 2, verse 1 with me. Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. If you'd asked Mary who the most important person in the world was, Caesar Augustus would have likely been on her list, maybe at the very top of her list. Through his rule, he initiated an era of peace, which we call the Pax Romana. He reformed the Roman system of taxation. He developed an extensive and far-reaching network of roads. He established a standing army and the Praetorian Guard. He rebuilt much of Rome during his reign. His list of accomplishments is impressive. But here, in Luke 2, we find Augustus acting as a mere agent of God through issuing a decree. Look with me at verses 4 and 5. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David. 
in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. The decree of Augustus leads to the fulfillment of a promised Davidic ruler who would rise up out of Bethlehem. The ancient prophecy is found in Micah 5.2. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth from me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. These ancient words spoken by Micah were shared in turbulent times. The nation of Israel was split in two. The northern kingdom was in a death spiral, away from the Lord and faithfulness to the covenant. Micah announced their fall to the Assyrians, and he lived to see that terrible day in 722. The southern kingdom, Judah, was following in her sister's footsteps. Not as quickly, but the direction was clear. Would this ruler from Bethlehem come? to save the people from themselves and their enemies. In 586 B.C., after a 30-month siege of Jerusalem, Nebuchadnezzar's army, for the last time, crushed an Israelite revolt in what had become a vassal kingdom. Jerusalem and the temple were systematically destroyed with fire. Everything was leveled to the ground. People were killed and deported. For many in Israel, this was the end. Their persistent evil was punished. But it wasn't the end of God's faithfulness to his people and his purpose to bless the nations through Abraham's offspring. After many years in exile, God raised up a powerful new ruler who would act as a mere agent, through issuing a decree. You know, the way Luke records Caesar's decree and Joseph's response in chapter 2 is quite reminiscent of the decree of King Cyrus over 500 years earlier, as recorded in Ezra 1 and 2. The decree of this powerful new ruler named Cyrus marked the beginning of the end of exile for Israel. Two men, Zerubbabel, a descendant of David, And Joshua, or Jesus, it's the same name, the high priest, led a group of captive Israelites from the land of Babylon back to Israel in order to build the temple, to rebuild what had been torn down, this special place of God's presence on earth. In some sense, Israel's dark night was coming to an end through this decree. God worked through Cyrus to bring them back to the land and establish the temple in Jerusalem. But even with all of this, everything wasn't as it should be. There was no reestablished kingdom. They were still ruled by Cyrus, and then all the way to Caesar Augustus in our text today. And the glory of the nation, the glory of their God, was missing. At the dedication of the tabernacle with Moses in the book of Exodus, at the dedication of the temple with Solomon in the book of 1 Kings, remember what happens? The glory cloud comes and rests on this dwelling place, and it's so bright, so powerful, so blazing, that Moses can't go in, the priests can't go in to the presence of God. 
for Zerubbabel and Joshua's temple. There was no ark in the most holy place. There was no shining glory that overwhelmed and frightened the priests. The promised king from Bethlehem, would, who would remove Israel's shame and conquer her enemies, that promised king was still yet to come. And going back to our text now, in verses 6 and 7, we get to meet him. Let's look there. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Isn't this a strange place for this promised king to be born? I get Bethlehem, right? It's a part of the prophecy. This is where it's going to happen. But Mary gives birth to this child, right? In some kind of place for animals. How could there be no room for her, a pregnant woman, in all of Bethlehem? What is God doing? Why a manger, a feeding trough for this king? Now, most English translations read that there was no room for them in the inn. And I warn you, I'm about to meddle with something that's quite dear to us and how we've envisioned this scene A better translation is that there was actually no room for them, not in the inn, but in the guest room. Luke uses this exact same word later in his gospel to describe the large furnished guest room where Jesus and his disciples celebrated the Passover together. The guest room was often the upper room of a multi-story house, a design which archaeologists have found common to the period. Joseph and Mary likely came to one of Joseph's relatives that day, but there was no room for them, perhaps because of the census, and somebody else was already there, staying in the guest room. So from the little we have to go on in this passage, it appears that what was available was where this family kept their animals, hence the manger. Let's imagine together what must have been going through Mary's mind. Did I hear the angel right? He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. My baby, born on a dirt floor with a bunch of animals, lying in this feeding trough? Why would God bring someone so important into the world like this. While Mary may have been wondering questions like those, nearby, God was just kicking off the party to celebrate the birth of his son. Look with me at verses 8 through 14. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. 
And suddenly there appeared with the angel a great multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Having a lake in Canada named after you is impressive, but I think we can all agree this is on a totally different level. And no offense to the Canadians in the room. The emperor of Rome, Caesar Augustus, may have been the most important person in the world until that night. For this tiny baby, born in rural Judea with an animal's feeding trough for a manger, the night sky lights up with angelic pronouncements, angels praising God. And did you catch it? That missing glory It's arrived. That glory that came to rest on the tabernacle and the temple, the place of God's presence on earth, the glory of God was blazing that night for the announcement of God's presence here on earth. And to whom do these angels announce the birth of this special child? For whom do they sing their glorious praises? Here it is again. A bunch of nobodies. These aren't Roman senators. This isn't King Herod and his entourage. It isn't Roman generals. These aren't members of the Sanhedrin or other religious leaders. They're regular people, not elite or rich. And to them, God announces the birth of the Savior, Christ the Lord. The message of this angel is important. Though the shepherds fear for their lives, the angel assures them that they don't need to fear because it's good news that he's bringing. Isn't it good to receive some good news? Especially when you wonder if you may be getting bad news. Imagine being those shepherds out in the night, just the sounds of nature, and then boom, the sky lights up and standing before you is an angel. Do not be afraid. Why? Because I bring great news, good news of great joy. And what is that news that he brings? He says, for today in the city of David there has been born for you a shepherd. Nothing particularly fancy or important. Born for you a savior who is Christ the Lord. In verse 12, the angel gives them a sign to verify what he told them is true and to get them to go find this baby. He says, this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Don't just sit on this good news. Go out there and find him for yourself. In verses 13 and 14, heaven breaks loose in joyful praise. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. The humble birth of God's Son inspires this incredible praise from angels. Glory to God in the highest. The angels announced that the birth of Jesus would bring peace. The Roman Empire was experiencing a time, was experiencing a time of relative peace. The people throughout the empire, right, it was a good thing. But those same people were actually in a conflict with their creator. People across the empire. People everywhere. 
who had cast off the reign and rule of their creator. They went their own way. This is the same conflict that led to the disaster and catastrophe of 722 and 586 when the northern and southern kingdom of Israel were hauled off into exile and destroyed. The Christ child was coming to save, to guide us into the way of peace and away from rebellion against our creator. This isn't an automatic peace, but a peace for those who would bow the knee to the son of David, our king and lord. Those who would respond to the mercy of God, who in sending his son was shining his light on those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death they would receive his mercy and his peace. After this incredible experience with the angels, the shepherds go and see this baby for themselves. Look with me at verses 15 through 17. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, let's go straight to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. The shepherds have this incredible experience with the angels. Then they go find the baby for themselves. And what comes next? For those of you who've given birth in the room, imagine this, right? You've given birth, and a bunch of grubby, smelly men want to come in and see this child. They come in, somehow they make their way past Joseph, and they see what the Lord told them is true. And so they tell Mary and Joseph about what the angels said about this child. And in verses 18 and 19, we see how different people respond to the shepherd's experience. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, just as it had been told them. The report of the shepherds was met with wonder from all who listened. And I bet there were quite a few who heard about it. There were no glass in the windows of the homes in Bethlehem. I bet the neighbors knew that Mary was giving birth that night. They heard about it. And I bet a lot of people in town heard this group of rowdy, excited shepherds searching for this baby who had been born in town. People were in awe and wonder at what was happening. But in verse 19, we see that Mary processed these events at a deeper level. She's pregnant as a virgin, bearing the Son of the Most High. And in this squalid setting for his birth, And now this group of shepherds talking about angelic pronouncements. What in the world is God doing? I don't know. (laughs) But he's doing something. And this child is special. In verse 20, we find the more straightforward response from the shepherds. It says, The shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all they'd seen and heard, just as had been told them. God was at work. He told these shepherds what he was doing. They checked it out, and it was true, just as it had been told them. So they praise him. They believed the angel and gave glory to God for their Savior, 
born in Bethlehem that night. The details of the, around the events of the birth of Jesus in Luke 2 teach us about who he is. Now, in working through this text together, I hope we've picked up on how Luke's account of Jesus' birth reveals both Jesus' incredible importance and his humility. Luke's two, Luke 2 juxtaposes angelic majesty with utter human commonness. We see in sharp contrast the riches of deity come together with the poverty of humanity at Bethlehem that night. This contrast would have been striking for the shepherds of Bethlehem. They didn't need anyone to tell them that they weren't particularly important. Yet it was to them that God sent his angels to announce the Savior's birth. It was shepherds that were invited to come and see God in the flesh. Think about that. With the temple and the tabernacle, only the high priest could enter into God's presence. In Numbers, we find a warning to the Levites that they should not come to see the sacred holy things in the tabernacle. The penalty for doing that was death. And here we have shepherds invited to come and see God's very presence here on earth. If the shepherds were surprised by their invitation, how much more so Mary? Like the shepherds, the angel had to tell her, do not be afraid, when he showed up to give her the news that she would bear the Son of the Most High. In choosing the ordinary, the humble, for the people and the place of Jesus' birth, God was signaling something to us about this child. This child was coming, not merely for the important and the rich, but for the poor, for the weak. He was coming not to be served as a king, but to serve. And he came in weakness and frailty. He came as a baby. Think about that. When was the last time you held a baby? Cute and cuddly and utterly dependent on you and others for everything. Here the author of the story writes himself in as the most weak and vulnerable thing you could be. A baby. And it didn't stop there. Jesus grew up. He lived a normal life. He worked with his hands. And after three years of public ministry, he surrendered those hands and gave his life for people like us. People who needed saved pay the price for our sin. The humiliation of Jesus began with his birth and it ended with his death on the cross to take the punishment we deserve for our sin and rebellion. The humiliation of Jesus reveals the unfathomable love of God for all, not merely for the rich and important, but for the poor, for the common. The birth of Jesus reveals his importance and his humility. But then it goes a step further in summoning our wonder and our praise. The descent of God 
should rightly stir in us the most profound sense of awe and our most enthusiastic expressions of worship. Like those who heard the report of the shepherds, the humble birth of Jesus should give us cause to wonder in amazement. In response to their story, verses 18 and 19, all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured and pondered these things in her heart. The people wondered. Mary treasured and pondered. How can it be that the Son of the Most High made himself nothing? A baby lying in a feeding trough. It doesn't make sense that the Son of God should be born like this. But even more than that, it doesn't make sense that the Son of God should be born at all. Ponder that. The Creator becoming the created knit together in Mary's womb. That's what Jesus did so that he could come and die and save us from our sin. Have you ever stopped to wonder why? Why couldn't God just say, all is forgiven and move on with things? Or if a death is actually necessary, why Jesus? Couldn't it have been an angel or a human? Or if it really does need to be Jesus... Why not just be incarnated five days before the crucifixion and get it over with quickly? Why does this journey as a man begin in Mary's womb? And why go to all this trouble? These are deep waters. And we're not the first Christians to ask questions like these, to ponder. To treasure what is going on. If we have listened well, these 20 verses invite us to join Mary in treasuring and pondering what all this might mean. This week, this Christmas week, let's join Mary in doing that. I love Christmas. Our kids are at really fun ages. Their joy and their wonder are a delight to me and to Emily and our extended family. But there's a lot of stuff to do with Christmas that doesn't really have anything to do with this. Sometimes it feels like the only thing that we do that really is focused on this, is coming to a special service at church, which is great. But Christ gets crowded out of so much of our celebration. I can imagine for some of the little ones in the room, presents are a big attraction. And for their parents and grandparents and friends, you know, maybe presents are an attraction, but also the stress of buying the right presents, finding the right thing. Maybe for you... Right? The stress of writing that perfect Christmas letter. Or for the parents, getting a decent photo of everyone. The planning and the parties and the activities. Or maybe just staying home and feeling the weight of who isn't with you this Christmas. Looking around and longing to celebrate like other people do. I have two questions for us. The first question 
is what do you need to turn from so that you can turn more fully to Christ this Christmas? To ponder and to wonder at what he has done. What space do you need to make to actually celebrate Christmas well this year? What needs to change in your plans this week? What needs to change in your definition of what successfully celebrating Christmas looks like? What needs to be laid down at the feet of Jesus? Busyness, expectations, grief. You know, when we take time to ponder this Christ child, we'll find things like a gift that makes every other gift pale in comparison. We'll find a purpose and an identity that transcends throwing the best party or having an amazing Christmas card or a, a nice photo. We'll find someone who's walked with us in grief and in sorrow. What do you need to turn from so you can turn to Christ this Christmas? Here's the second question. As you do that, who can you bring along with? Maybe a spouse, a child or a grandchild, a good friend, or maybe somebody who just needs a friend. Maybe a coworker or a neighbor who's open to hearing about your faith. Who can you bring along with you as you make space to ponder and wonder at the Christ child this Christmas? As we spend time doing this, even what we've done just now in looking at Luke 1 or 2, 1 through 20, I think we'll find something welling up in us. It's something that we saw in the text. The birth of the Savior will lead us, like the shepherds, to joyfully praise God and tell others what we have found. Verse 20, the shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, just as it had been told them. The angel told them, for today in the city of David is born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. They had seen their Savior, this baby, for themselves. They knew it was true. And this little baby isn't just their Savior. He's our Savior. And like those who heard the shepherd's report, we too have the opportunity today to believe and then wonder at and ponder the creator and author coming as a weak and vulnerable baby who would live the life we should have lived and die the death we deserve, be raised in glorious life, and ascend to the Father's right hand as a man to lead us who would follow him into his glory. Like the shepherds, let's offer joyful praise for this little baby, our Savior. Will you pray with me? Father, we praise you for sending our Savior that night in Bethlehem. Jesus, we praise you for humbling yourself by becoming a baby to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Spirit, help us 
like Mary, to ponder this child born in Bethlehem, the King of Kings. And help us now, like the shepherds, to joyfully give glory and praise to our great God and Savior. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.